I want to preach a series, many series, on the book of Lamentations. So I want you to turn tonight to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1. And we want to get a brief uh, introduction um, into the life of the person who wrote the Lamentation. The one who wrote the book, the prophet Jeremiah, seemed to minister more through his tears than his proclamation. As a matter of fact, there are more references in the book of Jeremiah to his tears than to his words. Um, he was a prophet who wept often, audibly. Um, he was always weeping. I've always been kind of emotional and uh, used to cry. When, when my mother'd cry, I'd cry. I hated that. Despised it. And uh, anything real sad, you know, she'd start crying, I'd start crying. Uh, oh, I hated that. It's not manly to cry. Now, we assume that tears are for children or ladies, but men don't cry. And if they do, they sure don't do it openly, in public at least, they do it alone. How unlike that are these biblical characters. For time and, and time again we read of the men of God, manly, muscular models of masculinity, crying openly. In Psalm 56, 8, the psalmist said that God puts our tears in his bottle and records them in his book. Now, if you're one of these people who believes that the Bible is to be taken literally, that means that God catches every tear, puts it in a bottle, puts a record down in his book of your tears. If that's the case, there must be some jugs full of the tears of Jeremiah because he, he often put his head in his hands and wept and I think we can safely say that the tears of Jeremiah stained his clothes and they smeared the journal that we now know as lamentation. He was a man who wept often and audibly. Now I want to read verses 1 through 3 because I want us to get something about his name, his world, and his era, the era in which he lived. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. The name Jeremiah means to throw. The Lord throws. Literally it means to throw down like a gauntlet. So that Jeremiah was a man that God threw down into a nation like a gauntlet. He's not gonna be a superstar. He's not gonna have mammoth success as some other prophets. He's just thrust into his times and he didn't fit the mold of successful prophets. 
He came from the little village of Anathoth. Now, Anathoth was this little village three miles northeast of Jerusalem where all the priests lived. It was a perfect place to grow up, to marry and have a family. Because all the priests lived there. It was quiet and it was peaceful there. And they'd gone up, they'd, they'd gone out three miles outside the city so they could study and meditate and, 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 and perform priestly duties. That's where Jeremiah grew up. But before he could marry, before he could settle down, God took this man with his hands and he threw him into the political and religious arena of the city of Jerusalem and he watched the demise of a nation that he knew was the apple of God's eye. His world, he prophesied in the days of Josiah. Now Josiah was this child king who took the throne when he was eight years old. And he reigned for 31 years in Judah. He was a good king. He was a godly, he loved the Lord really. When he was 16 years of age, eight years after he had assumed the throne, Josiah had a personal revival and he sought the Lord of David. In the 13th year of his reign, that would make Josiah 21 years of age and Jeremiah 19 or 20 years of age, God dispatched him to Jerusalem and he began a ministry alongside this contemporary, this man who loved the Lord. But he not only prophesied in the days of Josiah, there were four other kings after Josiah in the reign, in the time of, of Jeremiah, and the last four kings were godless. They despised the things of God, and they promoted all these kinds of anti-God interests so that Jeremiah was a prophet in a terrible time. He was a prophet of doom. He's not going to have a very progressive ministry. Now with your um, insert, I want you to turn to the back of it. I want to give you a little history lesson. I'll try not to make this boring or any more boring than it would be. Let me just mention that the kingdom, the kingdom of the people of God from times of kings existed for 120 years. There were three godly kings, each of them reigning for 40 years. There were Saul and David and Solomon. During this time, the, the, the kingdom was a united kingdom. And it was known as the kingdom. These were the people of God. At the end of the reign of Solomon, a civil war broke out and this kingdom was divided. Ten tribes became the northern kingdom called Israel. Samaria was the capital. And two of the tribes became the southern kingdom known as Judah. Now when a nation is divided against itself, it cannot stand. The northern kingdom existed for 200 years and they had 19 kings during that 200 years and every one of them were godless, none of them. Imagine this, 200 years of the people of God and not a single leader was a believer in God, godless. Not one godly king, 
And this nation finally fell in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians came against it. The other kingdom, the southern kingdom, known as Judah, existed for 345 years. There were 20 kings in all. Eight of them were godly. And during the time of these 345 years, there were three great national revivals that occurred in Judah. And one of them occurred in the reign of Josiah, the king. It's when he brought the scroll. You remember that story from Sunday school. And they found the scroll and they dusted it off and they read it before the people and a revival began. But it was a roller coaster, really, as far as the southern kingdom was concerned. They would be up for God one day and down one, you know, in one generation and, and then down after the next. And after Josiah's reign, it, that nation hit the bottom. And the Babylonians came and you know the rest of the story. Now the era of, of uh, Jeremiah who wrote Lamentation, he prophesied in an era that, exactly, that existed for 40 years. Now listen carefully. It was a time of unfaithful priests and indifferent people. It was a time when people turned from God. Social disease, said one Jewish historian, was rampant. A famine came. You may not really, uh, you may not have known this, but the four great Eastern religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, Zoroastrianism came into being in this era of time from 650 B.C. to 500 B.C. It was a terribly intimidating time. And so Jeremiah, this melancholy man, watched the slow death of his nation. Well, let me say parenthetically by way of application, as some of you can identify with Jeremiah personally, you don't laugh a lot, you're given to melancholia, you have deep emotions, you're analytical, you often see the dark side of everything. Now the reason I've mentioned that is because I want to show you, it, before we get to the book of Lamentation, that God has a special place for that kind of personality. All right, in your outline, let's look at Jehovah's action. Verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Three things. I knew you. It means more than just an, an intellectual uh, understanding or grasp. It means I entered into relationship with you before you were ever born. I knew you. It's an intimate term. I formed you. It means to knit. It's like a woman knitting with her, her knitting device. By the way, when you get down to discuss the... Uh, the uh, rightness and wrongness, the ethics of abortion. Just remember this, that, that Jeremiah received from God this word, that God knitted him in his mother's womb with care, meticulous care and concern. I consecrated you, means to set apart, and I put my finger on you and appointed you. 
Now, he was giving um, Jeremiah this information to become for Jeremiah an anchor because when times become difficult and disillusionment comes, it's good to know that, that God knows all about us, that he formed us the way we are with the personalities that we have because he has a plan for us like the missionaries who were just a short time in this foreign land and their child died and they turned away after burying their child in this strange land to go back to the house, looked at this sea of faces, all of a different color from theirs. All of them spoke a different language from them, all alone, and they went back to their house to weep together, and they, they said to each other, why will we stay here, out here, all alone? And then they just said to each other, because God put us here. And there'll be times when Jeremiah will wonder why he's here. He, don't, he doesn't want to be here in Jerusalem. It's because God knew him, knitted him in his mother's womb for that day, and planned for that. Now look at Jeremiah's reaction. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, because I am a youth. Isn't it amazing that, that when we become confronted with the fact that God has a plan, special plan for our life, we think immediately that we're supposed to preach. I think probably most of you tonight are still using the term special service. You know. And what we mean is that if God has a special plan for us, it's usually to be a preacher. I've got news for you. He has a plan for you that may or may not involve what you say. As a matter of fact, are you hearing me? He may have a plan for you which involves the ministry of your tears. I need to say that again because that's kind of frightening. It may be that God has a plan of ministry for you that involves the ministry of weeping. Now Jeremiah was 19 or 20 years of age and he lived in this little village of priests and God says, I have a special plan for you and he looked around at all these priests. And this is what he's thinking. Now, I'm the, la I'm the least likely candidate for this. What about all these ancients here? These men who studied the scripture these men who know all about the procedure of, of the temple, and he's saying he has a special plan for me. I'm the least likely candidate as he looked around all these ancients. I'm out of line here. But God never allows us to become preoccupied with our weaknesses because God best gets the best use and mileage out of your weakness. You see, God doesn't call you in spite of your weakness. He calls you because of it, strangely enough. For it is in our weaknesses that God's strength is perfected. And in the least likely place, God calls us. And so the girl came down the aisle when... Um, 
Was it Claypool was preaching at Baylor University? There were some coming from every aisle in this decision time, and she came down the aisle. She had braces on her legs, those aluminum braces, and she's pulling herself along by those arm crutches as she came down the aisle. Those braces were clanking against each other. He said he waited for her. It seemed like forever. It took her forever to get down the aisle. When he reached out to receive her and find out her decision, she spoke with a lisp. She had a cleft palate. Now you'll understand when I say these words, I'm not denigrating anybody's speech. This is how she spoke. She said, the Lord, I used to think that the Lord wanted me to be a missionary. Any fool knows that I'll never be a missionary. But I want to give my life to Jesus just as I am. And so God comes to, to Jeremiah, this man who is preoccupied with his weakness, um, comparing himself to all the ancients around him, just like he comes into the aisles of every congregation and into the pews of every congregation, and he says, this very thing that you are holding on to that keeps you from ministry is the very thing I want surrendered. I want your tears. I want your cleft palate. I want your weakness. Now look at Jehovah's confirmation in verse 7. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Now what he's saying is this. You won't even have to ask where you're supposed to go. I'm going to tell you where to go. And you're not even going to have to ask what to say. I'm going to give you what to say. So I'm going to take your inadequacy. I'm going to supply your need. That's my confirmation. And sometime if you want to see something exciting, you turn to the first Corinthian letter, chapter 1. Begin reading at verse 26. And, and Paul says that not many wise, not many mighty were chosen. God took the base, takes the base things and the foolish things to confound the mighty. And he takes the weaknesses of man and uses them. Now I want to show you the prediction and his personality. Now when I, when I talk about the prediction, I'm going to use the chapter 1, then I'm going to go to some selected verses, so get your Bible handy, would you? Here's the prediction. Then the Lord stretched out His hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. Billy Graham, here I come. You know? No, he says... See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms, here's your ministry, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow. It's going to be a negative and positive ministry. You're going to, have to, you're going to be given responsibility to tear down and destroy and pluck up and to build and to plant Verse 19, and they will fight against you. That's not exactly what he wanted to hear. 
and they will fight against you, but they'll not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. That's the prediction. Now, what is his personality? There are three aspects of his personality. Notice them. Number one, he's sad and lonely. Now, if you've got a Bible handy, just, let's just look at some of those references. Chapter 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Chapter 14, verses 7 and 18. And you will say this word to them, Let my eyes flow down with tears night and day, and let them not cease. For the virgin of my people has been crushed with a mighty blow with a sorely infected wound. If I go out to the country, behold those slain with a sword, or if I enter the city, behold diseases, a famine. For both prophet and priest have gone roving about in the land that they do not know. Chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, You shall not take a wife for yourselves. He wouldn't let him get married. He wouldn't let him have a family. So when he cried at night, he cried alone. Um, You know, um, as I've thought about uh, the the time, the years that I've been a preacher, and I was going over this, I've thought about all those times I came home and uh, cried with my wife. It happened here one time. I um, went home one Saturday morning, and I went in the bedroom, and I called Margaret in there, and we just sat down on the bed and cried. And there's something, you know, there is just really something special to have somebody that will listen to you and feel with you and understand. And Jeremiah was alone. And he was introspective and unappreciated. Chapter 20, verse 7. He says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. What he means here is, he's not saying that God threw him a curve. He's saying that, I, I, didn't really, I didn't really understand that it was going to be like this. I, I, didn't ha- I didn't have the slightest idea what I was getting into. You didn't give me the whole story. I was deceived. Thou hast overcome me and prevailed. I've become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. Verse 14. Cursed be the day when I was born. Let the day not be blessed when my mother bore me. Now that's getting pretty, that's getting pretty severe. You, you've seen these deals out in the yard and there's a stark there, you know, and he's got a little, says, it's a boy, you know, and everybody's proud. He said, let the people who put signs in the, in the yard announcing my birth, let it be said, Cursed is the day that I was born. This guy is in trouble. And he is faithful and determined. I want us to spend a little time in chapter 20, verse 9. 
But if I say, I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then my heart, it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I'm weary of holding it in and I cannot endure it. Are you hearing me now when I say this? And I really, and I know it true. Is that when God singles you out and He puts His hand on you for that work and He calls you to that work which is a ministry of uh, vocational ministry, sends you, dispatches you, it's like a fire shut up in your bones. And you can't endure the pain of that long. Some of the saddest people I know are the people who have turned their back on the call of God. It's like a fire burning inside of them. Some of the greatest distress I've ever heard are words of lamentation that come from men who've turned their back on a call. And I remember being the pastor of one out in West Texas, and he was a mechanic in a little town nearby. He said, Gerald, every time I start to work, I feel like the prodigal going to the hog pit. He said, I don't know how long I'm going to be able to endure this. He's faithful and determined. The fire's burning, and he's got to share it. So turn to chapter 32, verse 17, and we'll be out of here. Chapter 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, Thou hast made the heavens and the earth by Thy great power and by Thine outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for Thee. You want to underline that and memorize it? Nothing is too difficult for Thee. Now, there are a lot of things too difficult for you. I have a feeling that most of the things that God wants you to do are impossible with, for you. But nothing is too difficult for Him. Um, you've got a relationship that's in trouble. Nothing's too difficult for God. You got financial problems? Sometimes people say to me, I'm, I'm scared, I'm gonna, have, not, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna have financial problems. You need to be afraid not of the financial problems, but of the, you need to be fearful that you won't have enough faith when the financial problems come. Guy was telling me Friday we're sitting there eating and said he, he preaches up here in a little town nearby. He said he has a family in his church that, that are real, real, real poor. He said after, after church one Sunday, they said to him, said, we want you to eat lunch with us Sunday. And they, he said, well, we'd love to. So they prepared next Sunday. They were going to go home with them for, for dinner. And he said when they got in the house and they, they went in the, in, the, in the house in the kitchen, nothing was on the table. Nothing. And the wife kind of whispered to her husband and he left. 
he came back in a little bit. He had a little package of red rind bologna and a loaf of bread. And he said, we sat down at the table and no vegetables, no water, no drinks, nothing but bologna and bread. And he said, I was sitting where I could see and said, the, 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 the lady went over to open the, for some reason, open the refrigerator. He said, I could see into the refrigerator. There was nothing in the refrigerator except half of a half a gallon of milk. So everything in that house, all they had to eat was bologna. Bologna, we call it out in Monday. Bologna and bread. You think you got it bad? Nothing is too difficult. How do you survive in this world? You survive with the confidence that nothing's too difficult for God. For we live not by explanations. We live by promises. And the promise of God is, I'm going to take care of you. And so this man goes to Jerusalem to watch a nation die with the promise that God would supply his need. Where's God sending you? I used to think that the way that the way we did missions, etc., is that we we go and go to seminary and we go somewhere away off and you know, where's he sending you? Across the street, next door to that person you've hurt, where is he sending you? And what is his promise? Wherever he sends you, he'll supply your need. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'll make in us a fire to burn to do your will, to give to the Lord that which we have so you can use it, and that which we have not so you can be glorified. I pray that in a time of suffering and hurting and lostness, rebellion, sin, that you will call young men and women from places of comfort and ease, and hurl them down into this world to give their lives to following you. Call, Father, young men and women, I pray, into the fields that are white unto harvest. But, O oh God, give each of us a willingness to say, Lord, if it's my tears you want for ministry, if it's my kindness, if it's my talent, Lord, here am I, send me. For I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake.